Hi, welcome to season two of the Womanhood Podcast. My name is Mimi Healy. I'm so excited to be back sharing more incredible stories from amazing women who will hopefully teach you something, inspire you to do better in the world, and give you some wisdom for your day. Thank you so much for everyone who listened to season one and supported the podcast. I'm so honored I get to share these stories and speak with these women, and I'm looking so forward to season two. So without further ado, here's the first episode of season two. Thanks for listening. Womanhood is a podcast created to give voice to all women's experiences, which are typically stigmatized or silenced in society. I'm your host, Mimi Healy. Today's first guest of season two is Sarah Jaffe. She is the author of two books. Her first book is titled Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, and her second book just came out on January 26th. It's titled Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. She is a Type Media Center reporting fellow and an independent journalist covering the politics of power from the workplace to the streets. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and many other publications. She's amazing, and I'm so, so, so thrilled to have her on. This conversation is really rich in capitalist history and the labor movement and how our jobs are keeping us exploited, the labor of love myth, the gendered work which women are so often doing, what being an essential worker really means, how we can reclaim our time and find connections in humanity instead of work. Thank you so much for listening. Sarah Jaffe. I am a labor journalist, which used to be a dying breed. And thankfully, these days, there are more and more of us, which is very exciting. Um, And I wrote a book called Work Won't Love You Back, which is my second book. And it is making its way out into the world, which is wonderful and terrifying right now. (laughs) Yes, so exciting. Um, And so I guess let's just start with talking about your book, what is your book about? What is the labor of love myth? Like, what is exploitation? I don't know if you want to give like <laughs> overview of the book. Um, yeah. Small questions, easy questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I'm a journalist, as I mentioned, and before I was a journalist, I worked in the service industry for um, something like uh, 14 years of my life, more than that. Um, okay. More. Yeah, something like 14 years of my life. 
um, from like, you know, first jobs that you get when you're still in school to um, after I graduated college and had no idea what I was doing with my life, mm -hmm. I was still working in restaurants and in retail. Mm -hmm. And then I finally sort of went to grad school and managed to scramble through a couple of unpaid or one unpaid and one very low paid internship to the point where I was actually working in journalism and, and realized that like all of these things have some things in common, which is that we are expected to be sort of excited and happy and love this work, even though like the service industry sucks, right? Like mm -hmm. um, we know that. And yet I was going to job interviews for restaurant jobs and having the manager being like, well, where do you see yourself in five years? And I was like, dude, you're going to pay me two thirteen an hour. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is still, that was a million years ago. And it is still the minimum wage for tipped workers nationally. Yeah. Um, so I had been thinking about this in, in relation to my own experience. And then I became a labor journalist and I was writing about more and more different types of work. And it really struck me that this idea that we should all sort of love our jobs and do what we love and do work because we find work fulfilling is not actually that old. Um, it's a fairly new thing for like most people's work to be discussed in these terms. It was limited to, for a very long time, very specific kinds of work. And it sort of crept into the entire workplace as the older type of jobs have faded away, right? So as we shift over from, you know, industrialized countries being dependent on industrialized work, where nobody expected you to have to smile all day if you were working at an auto factory or in a coal mine or in a steel mill, you just had to show up and do the work, mm -hmm. get paid. And after, you know, a hundred years or so of union struggle, you got a halfway decent wage for that. Yeah. As we've shifted from sort of industrial society to post-industrial society in a lot of the, you know, what people will call the advanced capitalist world. Now we're supposed to work because it's fulfilling. Mm. But at the bottom, we're still working for the same reasons that people went to work in the steel mill or the coal mine, which is that we need to pay the bills. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think one thing too, that like that really brings up this, you know, myth of needing to love your job is, um, would you point out in your book so well is how that kind of inevitably leads to exploitation. Um, and I think a lot of times it leads to people being completely burnt out and completely hating their jobs that they were initially told that they would love. Right. Um, so can we, yeah, can we talk a bit about exploitation? You talk a lot about it in your book. Um, yeah. What is this in the workforce and why is it just so apparent now in the workforces that you mentioned in your book? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the idea of exploitation, um, I'm, I'm using Karl Marx's idea of exploitation, right, which is the idea that the work, we don't keep all of the value that we produce in the workplace, right, the boss keeps some of that value for himself. Um, and so that's true, again, whether you're a coal miner, or, 
you know, working at Google since today, as we're talking, they just announced a union of the workers at Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, and I, I write about Google worker organizing in my book a little bit, but this is a new development that, or at least a new development that is going public and it's really exciting. Yeah. At Google, they're organizing the workers sort of up and down the workplace. So they're organizing the, you know, cafeteria workers alongside the programmers. Mm-hmm. Because what they understand is that all of those workers create value for Google and the people who are, you know, some of the richest people in the world at the top of Google mm-hmm. or Amazon, right? If you're literally the richest person in the world, whether you're a programmer at Amazon or working in the Amazon warehouse, putting stuff in boxes to be shipped out, we're, all of that work creates value for Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means as people who work for a living, once again, is that we're not really doing this because we're in search of fulfillment. We're doing this because we're trying to find like the least miserable way to make a living um, often, or sometimes the only way to make a living, right? Like when I was waiting tables, I I was waiting tables because there wasn't a better option. Um, Not because I deeply loved serving food to people. Although there were times that waiting tables could be fun. Um, there were times that I made all right money at it, but at the end of the day, I was making much more money for the boss. And I'm still doing that when I'm writing for a magazine or a newspaper or, you know, the publishing house that's putting out my book. Mm-hmm. All of these things are how capitalism survives, right? There's no profit if you are not sort of squeezing more out of workers than you're paying them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise there, there would be no point in having a business. Mm-hmm. So that's, a kind of common condition. And my argument is that the labor of love myth sort of exists to convince us otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so prevalent and definitely it does convince, like I, I, I'm i 24 and yeah. um, I mean, I think most people my age are 100% convinced that you should love your job. And even in the jobs that I've had that have been in the service industry, the boss refers to things as like, this is great. Like you're connecting with people. Like it's so much more than what it really is. Yeah. Um, and I think in your book too, like you really get to the heart of like what you were saying earlier of things didn't used to be this way. They've slowly, this has crept up um, with capitalism and now neoliberalism. And um, yeah, I was wondering if we could talk, I guess, just to lay a foundation about how you think like this came about and society and the workforce has gotten this way in neoliberalism. Yeah, I mean, so I spend a little bit of time in the book talking about the 70s because um, we can blame everything on the 70s. It's fun too also. (laughs) So what happened then is essentially you have a profit crunch around the world, right? Workers are making more money than capital would like them to. And therefore capital's not making as much money as it used to. This is combined with an oil price shock, um, all of this sort of economic wonkery that is really interesting if you're a nerd like me. But the important thing to understand is that when we got the thing they called stagflation in the US, right, you got sort of rising prices along with stagnant wages. um, And you got 
yeah, I mean, that's obviously a recipe for misery, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way to tame that, it turned out, was to break the backs of unions, um, or at least that's the solution that the, you know, Carter administration went with, um, was to, um, the, the, God, it, it gets really wanky to talk about this stuff and like the Volcker shock, which is when the Federal Reserve chairman um, essentially stuck a wrench into the entire economic system. But what, what ended up happening because of this macroeconomic policy is a bunch of industrial jobs disappear, mm. right? So hundreds of thousands of people are put out of work by this. That drives wages down, which in turn allows companies to put out their products for less money because, you know, wages are one of those major costs. Mm. But what comes along with that is, is kind of human misery, right? Unemployment. Um, so to convince people to keep working and also to sort of shift the economy away from those industrial jobs, which have now either been automated out of existence or moved to countries that have fewer regulations and lower wages still. Mm -hmm. um, this is the ongoing outsourcing conversation, right? Yeah. Have in these countries, you've got to figure out what to do with all the people. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is people move into other fields of work. Um, the same thing that's happening of interest to your podcast and probably your listeners is, is as men are being thrown out of work, women are moving into the workplace, both because, you know, feminism at this time is sort of sees um, work as a form of liberation from the boredom of housework, right? The, the feminine mystique, Betty Friedan argument, but also importantly for a lot of working class women, because their husband no longer makes enough money to support the family. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, you get women moving into jobs that aren't like great, exciting career jobs where you get to talk on podcasts all day about the book you wrote, but they're moving into low wage care work jobs and retail jobs. They're, they're going to work at Walmart, which is starting to take off around this time. They're going to work in hospitals and nursing homes and care homes where they're doing work that women used to do unpaid in the home. Now they're doing it for wages, but pretty low wages in the workplace. And so what happened with this entire shift of our economy is it's also a shift in the sort of language that we use to talk about work. So the sort of heroic narrative of the guy who goes off to the, the car factory, and this is, this is language that Trump very much relied on to get elected, right? To talk about bringing back those kinds of jobs. Yeah. The promise sort of implicitly being, we're gonna make men feel like men again. Yeah, like making America great again. Right. It, it's, it's that was great, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bringing, bringing back the jobs for dudes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and like, bless them, I do a lot of reporting on factory closures and plant closures because it is a really important story to talk about and understand how the economy changes. And, you know, real people suffer because of that. And it's not only men who work in those factories. Yeah. Definitely. You know, mm -hmm. um, by far, it's it's not at all. But like, the narrative is that those are jobs for, for you know, white men to support their families and the job in the nursing home or the home care work these are jobs for women and mostly women of color. Mm -hmm. And so the narratives used to describe the work that women and mostly women of color do are much more prevalent in our workplaces now. And the, the nice story that we sort of got told on top of this changing economy is that we're going to have a knowledge economy now, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have Google jobs instead of 
factory jobs. You're yeah. going to learn to code instead of being a coal miner. This is the thing you're always talking about, right? Is teaching the coal miners how to code. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the thing about that, sorry, I go off on like a lot of tangents, so you can stop me. No, no. But the thing great. about the, the coal miners learning to code is that coding could basically just become another job like coal mining, right? Like if enough people, if there's actually enough space for it, what that will do, or if, rather, if there's enough people going into that work, what that will also do is drive down wages, mm. right? Because yeah. like programming is expensive and difficult to get people to do because it's relatively rarefied right now. If you teach everybody to code and you stop requiring a four-year degree but actually, you know, open up coding boot camps and, and really, you know, teach everybody the rudiments of the job fairly quickly and easily, then what you create is a blue collar coding workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, these, this, this idea that like the knowledge economy therefore is going to be filled with great jobs is belied by, for instance, my experience in journalism, making $35,000 a year and expected to live on that in New York city. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess I was thinking when you were saying that, like, to me, in my limited knowledge of, I guess, like, labor and wages and, like, the economies of all of that is that, like, it looks like we are headed towards that period of, like, a coding, like, trade school or something. Mm -hmm. like, I feel like in 10 years, that will be definitely... A thing do you do you think that or do you think that like these trade jobs such as like carpentry or uh a factory worker or plumbing what what have you would uh still be like a viable job i think i mean the thing about work right is that um it it's not designed to make us happy um mm -hmm. and so There's, I think one of the, the interesting things that the pandemic has shown us is this idea of essential workers, right? Who are the essential workers? What is the essential work? What is the work that can just be shut down and none of us will really notice, mm -hmm. right? And that leads us to some really interesting questions when we're talking about, you know, which work is going to stick around and which work can be automated out of existence or we'll just keep being shifted around the world, although I suppose eventually they'll run out of, you know, low-wage countries around the world to shift the work to. Um, mm -hmm. There's, there are a lot of, of ways that the way we work has changed and can change very quickly. And that was the experience that the pandemic brought to us, mm -hmm. is that that sort of real-time experience of sort of what those people went through in the late 70s when all of a sudden Volcker threw the brakes on the economy and everybody's getting thrown out of work um, or the Great Depression, right, where suddenly millions of people are just thrown out of work and there's no social safety net at all. Mm -hmm. um, so like it's absolutely possible that coding just doesn't maintain its status for very much longer. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly lots of people who would like to do this. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook you know, put a bunch of money into a, a nonprofit advocating for immigration reform. But what kind of immigration reform Mark Zuckerberg really wants is more guest workers that he can bring in from India and other places where the education is relatively good and the wages are still pretty low. 
So those workers are going to be grateful to come work at Facebook, but also when they come in as guest workers, that means that if they get fired, they just have to leave again. Yeah. They don't have any legal status that's tied to anything other than the job. So, you know, things like that, um, they sound great. Oh yes. Mark Zuckerberg likes immigrants. Isn't that nice? No, Mark Zuckerberg just wants to find the easiest and most exploitable workforce to do his work for him so he can continue to make more money. Um, and that that is still true of, of every boss out there. This is not like sort of a value judgment on Mark Zuckerberg being a uniquely horrible person. <laughs> He's just a boss. Yeah. Um, and the way that I try to sort of explain this in the book and going through all of these different kinds of work is to show people that like, the boss is still the boss, no matter what kind of work you're doing, whether you're running public schools or a hospital or Facebook, you know, the boss is still trying to get the most work for the least money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, when you were saying that about like the hypothetical situation of like Indian immigrants coming over working at Facebook, but then right. once those jobs are no longer there, they go back home. It's like that really reinforces the idea of like work is life, life is work, like mm-hmm. love is work, work is love. Like, right, exactly. That, I mean, it's like a cyclical, um, like seemingly it's a cyclical kind of thing and I would like to go back to what you were saying earlier um I guess jumping back a little bit about the like gender division of labor and then come back again to the whole concept of love is work work is love but um kind of with what you were saying about like essential workers I think a lot of this we've seen as like either hospitality workers, retail workers, um, healthcare workers. And you mentioned in the book so many times that's more women-focused work. Um, so yeah, can we, can we talk a little bit more about like this gender division of labor? Um, especially I'd love to hear about, you know, in COVID, like we're really seeing this and it's kind of ironic that, I mean, I was going to say it's ironic that maybe more women are working essential jobs, but Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that's right. Like, would you agree that more women are working in those jobs? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, And I think the thing that that we've seen, once again, I I did this interview with Tithi Bhattacharya early on during the pandemic about um, what we call social reproduction theory. Um, And Tithi is a professor at Purdue, and this is what she writes about and studies, and she edited a wonderful book on the subject, um, because I will never stop recommending other people's books while talking about my own. (laughs) And so we were talking about what we see with the sort of essential work divide is the essential work is the work of social reproduction. It is the work of making sure that people continue to exist and are healthy and moderately happy. And that is work that is necessary for humans to continue to exist, but it's also importantly necessary for capital accumulation to continue because capitalism still needs workers. So social reproduction work is, you know, it's the foundation of society. It's, as the domestic workers union likes to say, the work that makes all other work possible. And that is true, again, whether it's paid or unpaid work. So um, in the book, I draw on the lessons of the welfare rights movement and the wages for housework movement to talk about the way that 
these women made arguments and organized around the idea that the work they were doing in the home was work and it was important work and it was deserving of support. So welfare rights organizers said, you know, we're raising kids. That is the future. That is important work. And you don't want to support that in any real way, but you should, and we're going to demand that you do. And the wages for housework said explicitly, right, that that housework makes money for capital by producing livable conditions for workers and therefore it should be paid. Mm -hmm. And to understand that and to sort of um, look at the way that that actually changes the, the lens through which we look at work uh, is incredibly important. And at the end of that chapter, I, I quote um, my dear friends, Raj Patel and Jason Moore saying, you know, to call for capitalism to pay for care is to call for an end to capitalism. Like the system survives because it doesn't have to pay what this work is worth. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if it actually had to pay what that work is worth, the whole thing would be upended, right? If we looked at the essential workers who were still going to work even in the early days of the pandemic, although in a lot of places it's just as bad or worse than the early days of the pandemic is right now. Um, in the early days, people were getting hazard pay. They were getting bonuses, right? Kroger, the grocery store chain was paying $2 extra an hour to its workers. It stopped that sometime, even though the pandemic isn't gone. Those workers aren't risking their lives any less when they go to work now as they were in March. Yeah. Um, but what happened in the interim is that the US government didn't renew expanded unemployment or any other supports. So for a little while, when people were getting extra unemployment money, right, when the government was supp supplementing unemployment insurance with $600 a week, then people could actually live on their unemployment and they could choose to stay home rather than risking themselves going to work. Mm -hmm. When that runs out, suddenly the boss doesn't have to pay you hazard pay anymore because you're stuck going to work, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so it's not that like the work was dangerous and therefore we valued it differently. It's still that they will pay you as little for that work as they can get away with paying you. And yeah, so traditionally we, we have not valued that work and we see over and over and over again the way we continue to not value that work or we value it with lip service or clapping every Thursday or whatever it is to thank the healthcare workers. Yeah. Well, those healthcare workers right now are saying, come on, get the vaccines out. What the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. While they are expected to still go to work and you know risk their lives every day. Yeah, I guess kind of going off of that, like women being seen as these naturally caring people and essential workers, like how how do you feel like, is there a way to break free of that like societal belief? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, or I don't know, like what are your thoughts around that? And like, how do you feel like people could 
be in the workplace without taking on those like extra pressures of, you know, being expected to like go above and beyond what their jobs actually require just because they're women or just because they're essential workers. Yeah, I mean, in the book I write about the teachers going on strike, right? And the way that teachers unions sort of for the entire history of teachers unions, but especially in recent years, have really successfully reframed their demands as being demands for the whole community. And the teachers are still doing that, right? Right now, um, the UK is having a a ridiculous COVID surge and they were, the government was saying they were gonna keep schools open Mm -hmm. and the teachers union was just like, no. So like the teachers have been doing this since the beginning of the pandemic, right? I wrote a story about New York City public school teachers, um, again, organizing a sick out and forcing the schools to close. Um, That was, you know, back in March. And like this, it it is true, right? That the the line from the Chicago Teachers Union that now teachers everywhere have adopted is our working conditions are our students learning conditions. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's what you spend on teachers shows how you value the people that they care for. And this is also true of nurses. And so, you know, when nurses go on strike, one of their number one demands in nurses unions around the country for years and years now has been staffing ratios, which means the amount of patients that each nurse is responsible for. So nurses are constantly arguing for set staff ratios, right? So that there has to be a certain amount of nurses per patient and for those to be lowered, which means more nurses, which means each patient gets more time with their nurse, which is again, like it's, it's. I mean, there's actual medical research that shows that this is better for patients, obviously. Um, but it's also just like, think of the last time you were in the hospital or somebody you love was in the hospital. Like the more access you got to your nurse, the better you felt. Mm-hmm. because they are making sure everything's okay. They're the one who notices any changes in somebody's condition. Um, you know, in the early days of COVID, the nurses were talking to each other about what they were doing to treat patients because they are the ones who were hands-on with the patients more often than the doctors, right? You get you get five seconds with your doctor if you're lucky in an American healthcare system. Um, but the nurse is the one who's gonna notice if somebody needs to be intubated, right? Like these are things mm-hmm. that, the care is better if the nurse gets to spend more time with each patient. And it's not just like sort of holding your hand and and trying to make you feel happier. Although like that's very much part of that work and it's important, but it's also being around the patient means that they notice things in somebody's condition changing. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is, is a demand that nurses unions will fight for more often than they'll fight for a raise is they'll say, we want you to hire more nurses and have a set staffing ratio so that we can do our jobs better, which in turn produces better results for our patients. And so that kind of demand has been really successful. So in California, um, the staffing ratio is state law um, and other nurses elsewhere have won that in union contracts or whatever. And so, you know, this, this kind of a fight they've started to be very smart about the way they go into it, which is to say, using the expectations that we have that these people are naturally caring, to say, yeah, and also you aren't giving us what we need to do our jobs. Mm -hmm. We do care about the kids, we do care about our patients, and also you are not giving us what we need in order to actually do our jobs properly and to actually care for the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, thing that I like one question I was going to ask is 
uh, about like realizing what your labor is worth. And I feel like that perfectly exemplifies like they're not necessarily saying we're working really hard. So we just, we demand a raise. They're saying like, we're working hard and this is what that work is worth. And I um, would love to ask like, how can realizing what your labor is worth affect not only your workplace, but like your life and your self-value? Like what have you seen in your journalism um, of how that's affected people? Yeah, I think the thing about um, this book is that like people sort of want me to give personal advice and my personal advice is like organize your workplace, right? That like these aren't sort of things we can individually change, but when you get a bunch of people together who are all realizing that your boss is actually paying you way less than you're worth, um, you can in fact do something about it. And the thing you can do about it is often get it refused to work until your conditions improve which is why, you know, spend a bunch of time talking about teachers going on strike and nurses going on strike. But all of that organizing has to start with people realizing that this is not just naturally the way things are. Mm, Yeah. There's an alternative that it doesn't have to be this way, I think is, I mean, like I said, I'm 24 and I read it and I kind of had like a mind blowing moment of like it really doesn't have to be that way you know I think I think people um and I mean speaking as a woman like I've felt uncomfortable in workplaces where you don't you're working harder and being exploited and don't feel comfortable to ask for things or demand Mm -hmm. the rights that you deserve uh and I think I think your book really is empowering in that way um to really you know kind of take a step back and be like, what is my labor worth? What is my time worth? Um, And going back to like the labor of love myth too, I think realizing that that's a newer concept is um, really powerful. Uh, I kind of wanted to touch on like companies nowadays that I feel like are really profiting off of that labor of love myth. Like the company that first came to my mind was WeWork. Um, no, we work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I know that they bring in a lot of services or like big tech companies as well. You know, like they have these really great luxurious kind of headquarters and like, how is that, is that exploitation and how can we like utilize <laughs> my favorite subject? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are two ways to blur the boundaries between home and work, right? Mm-hmm. One of them is this sort of gendered female thing of you leave the house, but you are still doing the work that is very similar to the work that women have done in the home for hundreds and hundreds of years. The other way is to make the workplace seem really fun and cool and have all of the amenities that you might have in your apartment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in my, my tech workers chapter, I talk about this a lot, right? Because this is very much true of, of the tech worker um, or the tech company thing, right? We keep t- coming back to Google because it makes such a good example. But like these places are sort of famously like cool places to work. And um, yeah, like Andrew you never Ross, yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Now, Andrew Ross's book called No Collar was written in the, um, God, he researched it in the late 90s and it came out, I think, in 2000. 
Um, and yes, I'm going to continue recommending other people's book. Andrew Ross's book is great. Um, and he was looking at the way that like no collar as opposed to blue collar or white collar, right? Is like you wear the hoodie and the t-shirt to work, right? Mark Zuckerberg, again, famously wears a, his hoodie all the time. Um, another wonderful book to recommend is, is Kate Lossie's memoir of her time working at Facebook called The Boy Kings, mm -hmm. which is such a good book. And Kate is just a wonderful writer. Um, and, and the the whole thing that they do in these places is try to make them really cool and fun so that you never leave, so that you're always working. So in her book, Kate describes these like pool parties. It's like Facebook, actually, I think she was the one who convinced them to have to get this beach house where the employees could like live at this beach house for the summer. But that meant they were always working. Yeah. You know, um, and that, you know, so they're describing all these parties, but all the the workers are sitting there with their laptops open. And then some of these features at Facebook that we, you know, we think of as normal, like Facebook video was actually, you know, something that one of these guys did on his off hours just to see if he could make it work. Mm -hmm. And then the company sort of absorbed it and announced a launch date for it. And then this guy worked himself to the point of like literal collapse to make sure it could launch on time when it was just a project he'd started for fun, mm. you know? But if you make the workplace fun and cool and whatever, then you never have to leave. And so the thing, and I should um, credit my friend, Julian Saravo, who is also quoted in that chapter for helping me with this insight. is just like the workplace becomes like your mom or your wife, mm. you know? So instead of the wife work going out of the house, it's sort of the, the wife work comes into the workplace. So, you know, these are, are the reason Kate's book is titled The Boy Kings is these are workplaces that are sort of designed around the needs of young men mm. because that's who the coders were at that time, right? They were not mostly, you know, sort of older workers. They were young men who were learning the latest stuff and, you know, in some cases, you know, hackers who were doing this for fun then suddenly get hired by these big companies yeah. and, that, you know, that, that workplace fills in the space between mom taking care of you and getting married. Yeah, it's like coddling them to feel comfortable enough to, yeah, like leverage this knowledge that they have. I guess. Right. I mean, the, the, the worker that I interviewed for that chapter, um, his name is Kevin Aguatza, and he's a, um, a video games programmer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he likes his job. His company treats him pretty well. Um, but you know, they, they sort of advertise their like home cooked meal, except that's not home cooked. It's a professional chef that you're paying, you know? <laughs> um, but it's all designed to sort of blur these boundaries so that you never stop working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then now with COVID, right? Like the work has literally just like come back into our homes and some people have written about, you know, the way that this is just the workplace colonizing your home. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my next question, yeah. like, was that with COVID and not being in those spaces as much, right. like, I you mean, you, you write extensively about COVID in your book, but since uh, your kind of final draft and since it's coming out, like, how have you even seen that progress more of, like, the workplace coming into the home? Do you think that is... Cause I've, I've heard two sides of it. Like on one side, I hear people saying like, this is great. Like I can work from home and I can take time for like other passion projects instead of commuting, or I can, this, this frees up time um, to do other things or 
like I'm able to make my workplace what I want it to be because it's in my home. But then I've also heard the side of, you know, this is bringing your workplace home and where's the work-life balance? Where's that separation? Like, do you think this is a good thing? Do you think this is a bad thing? What are your thoughts on it? (laughs) So I should say, first of all, that I finished this book. I turned it in on February 28th of last year. And by the time my editor was finished editing, the world was entirely different. And we had to, I sort of went back to every one of my workers and talked to them about what their life was like under COVID now, how things had changed. Um, So we had to do an extensive amount of work on this book in the spring to actually COVID proof it. But the good thing about it was that like my fundamental argument was just being proved more right every single day. So it was just more like, here are the different ways that work has colonized these people's lives, right? So Adela, who is the nanny that I interviewed, um, Mm -hmm. when I first met her, she was a day worker. So she would go um, to and from her employer's house every day um, and then go home at the end of the day to her own family. And once the pandemic started, she actually became a live-in worker. So again, like work became home in a different way for her, where she was now living with this family so that she had less risk of going back and forth and transmitting the virus. And then her employers would like drive her home every weekend so that the only people she was in contact with were her own family and the kids that she was caring for. Mm-hmm. But so there are all these different ways that like things got scrambled, but in, in very few cases did it get much easier. Um, On the flip side, I've worked from home since um, 2011 was the last time I had a job that had an office. In that time, I have had two actual full-time staff writer jobs and the rest of the time I've been freelancing. But even the last two times I had a job, um, I still worked from home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in one of those cases, like my employer bought me a laptop um, and, you know, but I've been living this life for a very long time. I also don't have kids, so that helps. Um, but like the way that, you know, I, I remember early days sort of putting up a Facebook post, like here is my advice on working from home for people who have not done it before. And one of the things about it is you really do have to figure out how to set boundaries and hold them. And that's true though. I mean, that's been true of, of you know, work since we had smartphones. You know, or I talked to retail workers who were, you know, on call oh, yeah. or work the same day a lot of the time. So they would be scheduled for on-call shifts, which is like the worst of both worlds because you're sitting at home. You can't really do anything because your boss might call and say, we need you to come in. On yeah. the other hand, you might just not make any money that day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there are all these different ways that work colonizes our lives. And the thing to be sort of figured out about it in any case is is always going to be figured out through sort of experience and struggle. And so we can experience being shoved into working from home and figure out like, oh, here's what I like about this. Here's what I don't like about this. Here's what my employer wants out of this, which is more work, more work, more work. And great. Now you can use the two hours that you would be commuting to just work more. Um, And here's what I want out of this, which is now I have to make sure that my kid is online doing their digital schooling while I'm at home trying to do my digital job. And so, you know, the way that I talk about, um, work having changed in the 1960s and 1970s. And the way that I I talk about the labor of love myth is that it was an attempt to sort of give workers what they asked for in a way, right? You would have 
factory workers, like the ones at Lordstown, which is a story I'm obsessed with. And I, I went there to do a story when the Lordstown factory closed in 2019. Um, but you know, in the seven, in the late sixties, early seventies, the workers there are just like, yeah, but this work sucks. Yeah. They were demanding more autonomy and more interesting work and more creativity. And they did say like, we don't want to be in a factory for 40 years. And so what you get from that, you know, is, um, you know, I'm, I'm a nerdy Marxist. And so I will say it's always <laughs> dialectic, right? The, the way that these two things get smashed together is a product of struggle. And the thing that comes out on the other side is a combination of both, right? It's the synthesis of what the workers wanted, what capital wanted, and which one gets more is a, you know, function of who had more power in that moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the New Deal is a product of that same kind of thing. And what happens in the 70s is that capital ends up with more power. And that means that what we get is we have to love our jobs, but our jobs suck more and more every day. Mm-hmm. In the last chapter, I am really fascinated by, you know, this concept that you write of of taking our time back from work and like our schedules that are determined by our work and this idea of the kind of reclaiming of your time and truly finding like connections with people and love of humanity. Um, And I was just wondering if like you could touch on that. I mean, how do you think we can kind of take back our notion of love to be not surrounded by work and schedules, but surrounded by connections and humanity. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that when work when work becomes love, then love becomes work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, can go off on like Tinder and all of those things, but importantly, <laughs> you know, we sort of start to talk about our our friendships like they're business investments, um, and all of this, and like. I I keep joking with friends about like COVID is so like conservative and heteronormative because like it really has sort of pushed everybody back into these like little nuclear family units. And if you're like me and you don't have a nuclear family unit, you're just alone. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of brutally how it is now, right? In, In the US, when we get healthcare through work, if you, or, you know, possibly a spouse's work, we, if we don't have that, then we don't have care. And, you know, all of these things are, are sort of hooked together in this way that's, that's just awful if you're alone. Um, and also the way that we can change any of this, I keep saying, right, is you can't do it alone. You can't just sort of like change your attitude towards work and therefore get around all of these, you know, common sense stories about how, what work is. Or certainly you can't just personally get around the way your boss treats you. We have to do that together. And that requires finding time, claiming time, demanding time with other people to actually connect in all sorts of meaningful ways. And that has to be sort of outside of the rules of like, well, if you have this kind of a relationship with this person, then that's acceptable, right? That's who can visit you in the hospital if you're sick. That's whose health insurance you can be on. That's who can get you a visa if you want to immigrate. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the relationships that are allowed because they are on some level economic units, right? Like Kathy Weeks talks about the family as a privatized economic unit. And that's that's really what it has become. But 
that is to say, I mean, in my first chapter, I sort of go hard on the family. Um, but that's not to say that like loving other people is a scam. It's actually to say that like what we have now is a world that has absolutely twisted all of our human relationships into something that serves profit. And actually those human relationships are also the thing that can get us out of that situation. Mm. And that's just, you know, yeah, I, I, I was feeling pretty emotional when I wrote that book chapter, but it's really been true for me that like the last few years have been some of the hardest of my life, even before the pandemic hit. And I've also met some of the most amazing people who have really taken care of me and made sure that I made it through all this time. And none of them are, you know, my monogamous romantic partner, Mm. but all of them are comrades and friends and people who have expressed solidarity in a million different ways. And that has allowed me to get to this point where I'm here and functional and have a cup of tea and a warm apartment to stay in and have this book coming out in which I'm trying to tell people that there is no personal solution to the problems of work, but there are ways in which work has become this sort of most personal of issues, right? And it's gotten into every place that it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And so the personal is still political as the very old uh, feminist slogan goes, but that is going to have to be solved collectively. And that has to start with connections, whether that's the first sort of tentative email that you send to your coworkers about unionizing or the people that you meet up with after work to plot, you know, whatever organizing you're doing or just the people who take care of you so that you can continue to function the next day. Mm. Thank you. I mean, I think, I think that's a great note to end on. If there's anything else, I always ask everyone like, do you have any advice that you'd like to share? Any last words? Um, I mean, my advice remains join a union, unionize <laughs> your workplace. Um, it's not easy. It's hard as hell, but it is one of the more rewarding things you can do. And yeah, I, I otherwise I think we covered it. You can find Sarah's new book, Work Won't Love You Back, wherever you find your books. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at womanhood underscore podcast, on Twitter at womanhoodpod1, and Facebook at womanhoodpodcast. See you in two weeks. Womanhood was created and produced by Mimi Healy with sound design by Matthew Peary.